The Data Reaper podcast is a companion which provides extra insight into the weekly report found at ViciousSyndicate.com. Join us for a deeper dive into the numbers to help you improve your Hearthstone game. Hello and welcome to episode 138 of the Data Reaper podcast. I'm your host Corbett and joining me today is the Zacco Lab Constructor. How you doing, Zach? How you doing, Corb? Um, sorry for the delay, but I honestly, I thought we already had episode 138. So I was thinking, wait, like, never mind. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> My head was, was, was uh, wandering. Uh, there's something that makes me make is making my head wander, but uh, yeah, uh, I'm doing good, Corb. Uh, exciting times. We're in reveal season. We had our uh, VS exclusive uh, card reveals yesterday uh, with the rogue class. We'll talk about that too. Uh, and yeah, things are happening. Things are definitely happening. We're recording on the 16th. Uh, not to date the podcast too much, but at the time of the the recording, the three classes that we have seen so far have been Death Knight, Hunter, and then Rogue by Vicious Syndicate's very own. Uh, very exciting to to see you be able to have that reveal, Zach, and uh, be able to talk about everything Rogue today. So congratulations on that. Thank you, Corb. Uh, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the hyping everyone up for the Rogue set. We'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, we have a meta too. Or there's a meta going on. And we're not going to be... What we're going to do today, we're going to talk about, we're going to do a meta overview, what's been going on over the last three days in Standard. Uh, there's some noteworthy things that are happening. And after that, we'll talk about our general impressions of the um, Titan set so far, the neutrals, what do we like, what are we highlighting what what do you think corps are the most impactful neutrals maybe and then we'll go over the class sets we're not going to do card by card but we're going to obviously comment on the sets because uh what blizzard has has done is uh do reveals the way that i always wanted them to do which is you know they revealed okay there was the cool thing which is the titans they had a week of just revealing the Titans, one ti- two Titans every day. That was really fun. Then they revealed all the neutrals uh, within a couple of days. And now they're revealing a full class every day. And every class, and this is fantastic for a discussion, because every day there's a class to talk about. What is this class going to do? How do we theorycraft uh, decks of this class? And you have full information. And that full information... Just allows content creators to do more content, more, you know, uh, have, you know, a a wider picture of what's going to happen. So they're more comfortable uh, making predictions and stuff like that. And the community, the players too, have more fun, I think, theory crafting and, uh, you know, coming up with ideas and maybe, you know, making general analysis of, you know, the whole class sets because they have full information. They know what the neutrals are. They know what neutrals could potentially go into classes. And I'm seeing on the Vicious Syndicate Discord uh, is very vibrant with discussion and theory crafting and all of that. And this is thanks to the way that this reveal season is structured. And I hope that they continue with it going forward because this is the way to do reveal seasons. 
Absolutely. I always hated as both a consumer of Hearthstone content and as a creator, um, doing a card review and saying the words, um, this could be good. If it gets support, maybe it's strong, but if it doesn't, then it's not going to be good. I'll give it a three out of five. And now we don't really have any of that because we have all the cards available, uh, you know, to us in one big chunk. And I think it's awesome. Um, and it's just working out so well, I think, doing it day by day with each class. Every day, each class gets its own little spotlight and uh, full attention from the community. Um, but before we, we do that, you know, uh, we do have to say that there will be a report coming out on the 20th. I believe this will be the last report of Festival of Legends, Zach, before you fully dive into the new cards. Yes. Last report before we, uh, before I get to work on, you know, the comprehensive uh, card preview for Titans and the theorycrafting. Uh, you know, and I've already been theorycrafting because uh, it, it's made possible thanks to the early reveals. Um, well, knowing full classes uh, quite early. Uh, but I will say that even though right now we know what Death Knight uh, can do in the next expansion, the expansion reveals only end on next Sunday. And, you know, the the timing from the end of the reveals to the expansion is just a slightly over a week. So they actually cut the dead time uh, shorter, to be shorter. So I think they've done... Uh, a, a great job planning out this structure. Um, so it's perfect. But yeah, okay. There's a meta going on. Um, let's let's talk about what's going on in the meta. So we'll start with Demon Hunter. With Demon Hunter, there's not much to talk about. Outcast DH is the best performing deck in general. This is what it's shaping out to be. Relic Demon Hunter's performance is relaxing a little bit, which is something that I expected since, um, you know, a lot of the decks that Relic Demon Hunter beats are decks that are currently a bit underperforming. But Relic Demon Hunter is very good. It's got a positive renate throughout ladder. It's tier two, sometimes flirting with tier one throughout most ladder brackets, while Outcast is uh, more, I think, more comfortably a tier one deck, especially at higher levels of play. It's very powerful. Um, big fringe deck that sees not much play, but it's also decent. And then spell, which you can play on mobile. And when it does, when you play it on mobile, it's decent. Obviously on PC, it's, uh, it's unplayable. Demon Hunter, I'm not really seeing big news. So that's Demon Hunter. Death Knight, similar thing. Very similar developments to what's going on, uh, with, uh, with what you know, what I wrote in the report, not much changes in card choices or positions in the format. Hunter, similar thing. I am noticing that Hunter, at high levels of play, the win rate is relaxing. I don't think it's it's a tier one deck anymore. There, it's very strong. It's the best deck at diamond five and below. But uh, once you get to high levels of play, it's a good deck amongst several good decks. So it's not a clear outlier. It's not a, a oppressively powerful. It's a powerful deck and it's popular at Top Legend, but its performance is not insane. It's not, uh, doesn't concern me too much. Uh, Priest, we had 
in the report a long discussion about priest the new build the handmaiden build i'm i'm generally impressed by that build i think this is the way to go um for the archetype um but you know control priest is not in a great position in the format right now even at high levels of play it's like tier three ish um trying to get to the 50 percent win rate mark but not being quite there um warrior best deck or is it oh but based on the report based on the report for when rage warrior was the best deck uh from diamond four and above and I can tell you that over the last few days, it's still a tier one deck uh, throughout ladder, including a top legend. It's very, very good. Uh, when it comes to card choices, I've explained them in the report. What do you do? When are you running Wretch? When are you running Grom? Maybe you run both. Uh, some people are trying double Wretch, uh, which is also an option. Very good deck. Other warrior decks, not so much. So I blabbed and blabbed and blabbed, and I got to Mage. And this is where I wanted to stop. Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, Mage, for me, is the highlight of the format right now. And no, I'm not talking about Spooky Mage, because Spooky Mage, yes, we discovered that it's possibly best or best alongside Bromath. Best card is uh, Prison of Yogg, and Prison of Yogg is really helping this archetype uh, look better. And Spooky Mage is a deck that I think is trying to contest a tier three. It's kind of funny to say that, but it, it's still trying to get out of tier four, but it can, I think, with Prison of Yogg. But no, I'm not talking about Spooky Mage. I'm also not talking about Burn Mage, which is has kind of been deemed obsolete because uh, Secret Mage is so much better. And even though Secret Mage is the best performing deck throughout most of ladder, there's not nothing new going on there. The deck I want to talk about, Corb, is Naga Mage. Oh my goodness. What is going on with Naga Mage? Now, let's give you a little bit of a preview of what's been going on with Naga Mage, you know, based on the data for... The last report, I saw a deck that was unplayable throughout most of ladder, but had a tier three-ish win rate at top legend and had a really high, seemed to have a really high skill ceiling and skill trajectory. Uh, top players did much better with it. But obviously this was early days and uh, with these decks, you know, I've encountered these decks multiple times throughout history mm -hmm. and I kind of know how they behave. And usually what happens is that decks with a high skill ceiling, uh, and I'm not talking about decks like Control Priest, with ha which have, they have high skill ceilings, they have high skill trajectory, and that means that at high levels of play, maybe they improve in their performance by 1% or 2% in across matchups or something like Miracle Rogue that maybe can get to 3% across matchups and they can have a little bit of an uptick in performance after a period of time because people learn how to play these decks better over time even top players decks like nomi priest garot rogue uh uh you know 
Miracle Rogue from Alterac, uh, you know, from last year. These decks can have a certain win rate over a initial phase of the meta. And then after a delay of a week or two, they spike. They spike. Why do they spike? Because at some point, top players, after playing a lot of games, develop a greater understanding of how these decks, how to pilot these decks, and how to navigate certain matchups. Uh, and once they get to that greater understanding, they start producing better results. So when I looked at Nagamage, I said, okay, based on this deck's behavior, there's definitely going to be a, a delayed spike in the deck's performance. But it's very hard to predict what is that spike going to be? Is it going to be 2%? Is it going to be 3%? Is it going to be 5%? And I could tell you that Naga Mage, based on its spike, since the report came out and we notified people of this deck, it is the most skill-testing deck I've seen since Garot Rogue <laughs> in United and Stormwind. Since. It's not... I don't want to say it's Garot Rogue. I don't want to say it's Garot Rogue. However, I have not seen a deck behave like this since Garot Rogue. This is the most skill-intensive deck I've seen since the greatest and most skill-testing deck in the game's history, in my opinion, which is Garot Rogue. And Nagamage Spike appears to be around 5% in its win rate. Something like that. At top legend. When you're saying 5%, uh, what what is the five percent that you're comparing it to? I'm not talking about five percent from top legend to dumpster legend. No, mm -hmm. I'm talking about top legend to top legend. Top legend first few days when people first tried this deck, and then over the last three four days where the same top level players learned this deck over time and now they're producing results differently. They have improved by five percent in overall aggregated win rate over a period of a week and a half, which is enormous. This is something that you almost never see in a deck. Like mostly these decks, what happens is they spike by 2-3%, making Maga Mage becomes a tier 2 deck at high levels of play, and it becomes a competitive and good deck. But what Naga Mage right now is indicating, it is in indicating to me that it's trending towards tier one and being the best deck in the game at top legend. Okay, there's so much to dig into. First of all, I love how sacredly you hold Garot Rogue, Zach, uh, as, your, as your one darling, um, the exception of the exceptions. So I love hearing whenever you talk about Garot Rogue and just how uh, holy that deck is for you. Um, this is fascinating, like, for multiple reasons. Uh, one, like, Nagamage is kind of, there have been rumblings about this deck for a very long time. And obviously, we can't go back in time and say how good was this deck at a different meta, right? Um, but it is certainly possible that, like, the Einsteins that we were talking about that insisted on Naga Mage's viability, maybe they were right all along? I think they were right all along, Corb. I think what happens is, I if you remember, Garot also took a long time to gain traction. And the reason why Garot Rogue took so, such a long time to gain traction is that even pros, when they tried this deck, they didn't do great with it, and they thought it wasn't good enough. I recall there was a Masters Tour, I believe, or I can't remember what they actually called it, where a lot of players brought it, the the Miracle Rogue, or the, the Miracle Garot Rogue. They didn't even know what to call it at the time. 
Um, and so it was kind of very hidden uh, under wraps until that that competition, I believe. Yeah, it was very hidden. Uh, I think there were only a few players that brought it, but they did extremely well with it, and that convinced the rest of the pros or high-level players that this deck is actually good and they should dedicate more time into learning it. So Garoba was so difficult that even top players couldn't play it and took a long time to play it until the point where they were proficient enough with the deck to produce good results that you could see, that you could observe uh, on ladder. So top legend players, it took them time, but once they know, knew how to play Garut Rogue, the deck was the best deck in the game. Nagame, I think, is a less extreme case. This deck has been bubbling for a while, that is true. But nobody, but again, I think that it was the same similar case where nobody really believed that this deck was actually good. And when, when you know, top legend players tried the deck, they probably just didn't produce good enough results with it. And they thought, oh, this is just not good. Because nothing changed over the... I, I guess there was a patch, and the patch could have had some impact with Chadroid, and Chadroid is not likely not a good na matchup for Naga Mage. But I don't think that's the whole explanation. I don't think that explains all of it. I don't think Whomper is the thing that stopped this deck from gaining traction. It was just it was probably just extremely difficult. Now this isn't source bias. The thing is, um, sometimes decks have source bias. What is a source bias? They initially propagate a top legend and are mostly played by high level players who propagate them. And since only these players played them, initially they have an inflated win rate. But here we have a situation where Naga Mage over time is gaining traction through, you know, is being played, so is starting to be played by more players, which should, in theory, reduce its win rate if you're talking about a source bias because it's no longer a select few who play this deck. And yet, the win rate is spiking, which indicates that this deck's win rate is not biased by the population of players who are running it. Uh, it's a legit spike. Yeah, I remember a similar thing with Wampa Druid, right? Like, the only the most engaged players were picking up the deck in the first couple days, and, uh, you know, the Wampa Druid win rate was super, super high, and it eventually fell back uh, a little bit, I, I believe. But you said all the time. I, I remember you talking about this in a deck that you previously mentioned, uh, Nomi Priest. Uh, you're a little bit cautious, I remember... Um, uh, when the first when the deck first uh, became a thing, because you... I wasn't cautious. I learned how to be cautious because of Nomi Priest. Oh, was that was that the lesson? Okay, okay. Yeah, Nomi Priest was trash for like two weeks. I looked at this deck and it was trash. And I sent a report. It's just trash. It's just not good. And then two weeks later, two and a half weeks later, the win rate spike. The delayed spike took so long. Uh, it was so abnormal, and I've never seen that before that it surprised me. Then I said, okay, decks are actually capable of a win rate spike post two weeks. Uh, uh, I'll pay attention to that. I'll keep that in mind. And since then, I've been more cautious about these kind of decks and studying how they behave. And I was saying, okay, Naga Mage, this deck, very high skill trajectory. This deck is going to spike. I'm going to see what happens when it spikes. The spike happened, but the spike even surprised me. I expected like a 2 or 3% win rate spike. It's going to sit at tier 2. That's what I thought would happen. But again, this is very hard to predict. But the spike is 5%. It's bringing the deck to tier 1. It's bringing the deck to best deck in the game. And the spike is so high. Corb, I'm not sure this deck has a bad matchup. Oh, 
Like, I don't think I don't think this deck has a bad matchup. If you play this deck well, optimally, you know, people love saying that. I don't think this deck has a bad matchup. I think the the matchup against Control Priest is like 50-50. The matchup against Relic Demon Hunter is 50-50. Outcast DH is 50-50. And this deck beats Enrage, beats Hound Hunter. Convincingly. I think these matchups are like 60-40 range. And these matchups improved over time. These matchups, it didn't look like that. Naga Mage actually looked unfavorable against Control Priest like a week ago. It looked unfavorable. It looked under 45%. And it gained against Control Priest, I think, 7% as people learn how to play that deck better. Play around the Priest removal, not over committing. Very complex matchup. But I think Naga Mage is reaching 50-50 against Control Priest. That is definitely a matchup where... Without having played the deck, I would have assumed default the control priest is very favored. Right? It's like concede. Like you think, Naga Mage, what does it do? Board based deck, right? Board based deck, uh, just, uh, you know, plays things into clean the scene and gets removed and gets cleared. No, this matchup is actually 50 50. If you know <laughs> how to play Naga Mage. So, so yeah, Naga Mage, uh, you know, we have. We have one more report. I'll see. We'll see where Nagamate sits. Right now, the trend is top le number one deck at top legend. It's obviously not that like it could change. Obviously, until the report, we'll see where it sits uh, then. But and, and I know that this expansion is ending soon, and um, we're all hyped about the new cards. But I want to take a like just take a moment of your time to appreciate greatness because this is very unique. This is a uh, this is the deck that you're not gonna see often, obviously, since Garot Rogue and United and Stormin. That's been a while. Naga Mage is real. Uh, whoever was uh, propagating and swearing that this deck is good was right. This deck is actually the nuts. And if you loved this deck before and you're a top player and you you enjoyed Naga Mage back in Sunken City. And you want to bring back that nostalgia? You have two more weeks to to play the hell out of this stack, <laughs> and uh, and do well with it. Because if you do learn how to play it, it's it's the best deck. It's it's better than Outcast. It's better than Enrage. Again, based on current trajectory, is the secret already out, Zach? Or how much is the secret out right now? I mean, I think I saw Dead Draw hit not number one with Naga Mage. That's probably going to further enhance the deck's visibility uh i don't think it's a huge secret but i think that it needs to be you know this story needs to be written on paper and i'm gonna make sure that the story is written and this is why i'm i'm, I'm saying this in the podcast right now because i want more people to play it because this is a very interesting case study when something like this happens i'm a data nerd i really want to learn i want to analyze i want to compare this to uh, you know, decks of the past. So, uh, yeah, major news, Naga Mage. Uh, nice pun there, Zach, major news. Uh, <laughs> so, love that. Um, yeah, no, not what I was expecting. Um, love hearing about that, and, and especially development this late into an expansion. Like, we are so close to the new expansion coming out, this two weeks away, and yet, you know, it's always a nice reminder that there's a chance that there's something out there that players... You know, aren't anticipating, aren't trying. Um, to, you know, keep experimenting, uh, especially with a deck that, you know, is possibly this challenging. Um, but yes, congratulations to all the Einsteins out there. Yeah, I mean, with two two weeks, uh, 
two weeks away, and the meta is likely going to be dramatically different uh, if Nagamage uh, rises in play and becomes, uh, you know, the deck to beat. I don't know. I can't believe I'm saying this, but, like, I'm not sure how many players are actually capable of top legend of playing this deck well. Because it's, its current play rate is around 2.5% of top legend. Even a little bit less than that. So how many players are actually capable? Like, I don't think this deck can be higher than 5% play rate. I, I don't think that more than, you know, maybe. Maybe if you gave it more time, then people would would understand exactly how to play it and would be, you know, Garot-like in popularity. Uh, you know, Garot at its peak was a pretty popular deck at Top Legend. But still... Um, like, I highly doubt that this deck ever reaches, like, a 10% play rate anywhere because it's so, like, the barrier of entry is so high for this deck. Like, uh, like it's so high. Like, just, just, just for comparison, just so people understand, I know platinum level, like, gold, bronze, you know, lower diamond, like, doesn't matter that much for these decks, but I want to understand that, I want you guys to understand the disparity. At Diamond, like, outside of Legend, I'm talking about Diamond 4 to 1. Nagamage win rate is under 40%. It's under 40%. The win rate is in the 30s. <laughs> High 30s, but in the 30s. Like, this deck is giga trash outside of Legend. Just not playable at all. Not functional at all. And top legend win rate projecting to be 52, 53. So you're looking at a disparity from upper diamond. Not bronze. I'm not talking about bronze. I'm talking about upper diamond. People who are climbing to legend mid-month. They're not, they're not super hearthstone noobs. These are players who get legend consistently every month. 38, 39% win rate. You go to top legend, 52, 53. That's like a 12, 13 winner disparity. That is kind of Garot Rogue like. That is similar to Garot Rogue. Oh, Zach, I, I, this is a unique feeling. I've never been this excited, this pumped up to go take a deck to ladder and go six and 12. Man, you, you've done something here. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's hilarious. But, uh, but yeah, uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm screaming it off the rooftop. Off the rooftop, um, screaming, Naga Mage is the nuts. This is a unique deck in Hearthstone history. If you're a high-level player, go play it. I want to get more data on it. And we'll see what happens uh, in the report uh, on, on where it's situated. But uh, yeah, very, very exciting. Another deck that's uh, picking up that looks very good right now is Secret Rogue. I really like the build in the report. Uh, you can expect this deck, I think, to gain... Uh, more prominence over the next uh, week. It's it's doing really well, uh, and it seems to be potentially unseating Miracle Rogue as the deck of choice at top legend. Uh, Secret Rogue is already trending to be above five percent play rate, leaving Miracle Rogue behind. That is a significant development in the Rogue class as well. Uh, I think the disruption that Secret Rogue has, and the fact that it added Prison of Yogg to its late game is uh were crucial elements into making this deck finally catch up right finally catch on um other other classes are not really you know paladin shaman warlock 
uh, Druid, it's complete stagnation. Uh, there's there's not much going on there. And usually, again, usually, once new cards are revealed, once we get into reveal season, meta developments kind of stop. There's kind of nothing really going on because people, even when there is a development, people don't really pay attention to it much. They're more focused on, you know, completing their quest, their daily quest, their weekly quest with whatever deck they've uh, learned and enjoyed up to now. And they don't really pay attention to meta news or stuff like that. So it's hard for decks to catch up, which is why I wanted to highlight uh, Naga Mage. So that is it for the for the meta, for the meta and standard. Uh, obviously an exciting development. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens uh, in the last report. It's going to be very interesting to see where Naga Mage lands. Because for a deck like Naga Mage, four days is eternity. Right? Uh, we're on Sunday. The report is on Thursday. There's so much data still to, to pick up uh, and, and see where this deck lands. So I'm excited. It's really cool. Uh and for me, this is uh, when the meta gets the most interesting. Yeah, that'll be uh, fascinating to read that report. Uh, really looking forward to that. And speaking of other future content, Zach, let's uh, let's dig into the Titan cards. Yeah, um, <clears throat> we had all the neutrals revealed. Uh, we had major mechanics revealed. Um, so let let's get into it. So I, I think what we're gonna do, Corb, is I'm gonna. I'm not going to go over the neutral set. I'm going to go over the neutral cards that I really like and I think are strong. And then you're going to mention other neutral cards that you like or think are, are worth highlighting. If I missed any. All right. Sounds good to me. First of all, best card in the neutral set is Ancient Totem. No, just <laughs> <laughs> I love this card. <laughs> zero mana, zero three totem. That's it. I love this card. This is one of my favorites. Uh, I actually think this card has a chance to see him play. Definitely in Totem Shaman, but maybe in Menagerie decks too. Um, for me, you know, there's always... Uh, I think there are a couple of good one-drops in the set. Um, but my my outstanding one-drop is Drone Deconstructor. It's a 1-mana one 1-2 one mech that has a battle cry. Get a 1-1 one, one Magnetic Sparkbot. We saw the Sparkbot in Rogue, but... This card is just good because it's both, for me, it reminds me of Firefly. Um, it's it's both a turn one play and it's also a turn two play. Because what you can do on turn two is you play the Drone Deconstructor and you immediately attach the Sparkbot to it on turn two. This makes it extremely flexible. And usually one drops that have the flexibility to become two drops always see play. This has a lot of people saying, okay, mech decks, this sees play in mech decks. I actually think there's a chance that Drone Deconstructor just sees play in decks that are not mech decks. Just because of the fact that it's both a turn one and a turn two. Yeah, and uh, even as a curve play, some of the options are quite decent. Like, uh, you know, Divine Shield, right? Like, all of a sudden you have a two mana... Uh, a two mana two three divine shield, um, and Very that could good. be useful. Right. Yeah, like, and that could be fine in um, decks that don't have a ton of need for synergy, but do need like solid early game. Uh, I definitely agree with you. I think this is like a four or five star card. I think it's the standout neutral in my opinion. Yeah, I I usually avoid the five star metric. I only have four because 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 of what you said. 
I don't like to you say, oh, maybe this is play, maybe this doesn't. Uh, three out of five. This is what happened. <laughs> just, uh, I will say that the four star uh, uh, metric does have kind of a cop out, which is the two star, which is maybe has potential or something like that. But I usually hate. I, I like I like to be more, you know, affirmative. I like that. You you have to pick a you have to pick a side. You know, no sticking on the fence with this one. You think it's you think it's weak? Just say it's a one. If you'll be wrong, who cares? But <laughs> you know, make a prediction. Stop because when you say, "Oh, this might have potential. It's decent. Might see play," then you're never wrong, right? Uh, but uh, you're never actually sound like you're saying anything meaningful. All right, what else has potential, Zach? Um, I do like. Uh, oh, I I think that Mecha Leaper is is a little bit slept on in Mech decks. I think that kind of magnet it's a three mana two two mech uh with magnetic and has a death rattle, give a friendly mech plus two plus two and this death rattle. Obviously this is a battlegrounds effect. <laughs> uh you know that from battlegrounds. Uh I think this is very sticky. It can get very annoying. And it might look a lot stronger in practice. I agree. Uh, this is one of my more interesting ones. I thought there was a chance that you were going to slip over it and I was going to have to bring it up. But uh, no, it seems like we're on the same page with this one. Yeah, I, I do like Mecha Leaper. I think that card's good. Uh, another card I think people need to watch out for is Ravenous Kraken. Uh, the three mana, two, five beast with a battle cry, destroy a friendly minion. And Death Rattle, summon a copy of it. So it's like half a cube. Uh, but the, the main thing is that if you remember Cube, Dark Pact, what it did is destroy the minion and then summon two copies of it. You can still do it right now with Kraken. You can go Kraken, uh, Shallow Grave in Warlock. You can also Kraken into Yelling Yodler in Hunter and Death Knight. And have a similar effect of copying a threat and producing double it. Uh, and I think it's it's a very powerful card. I think this card has really, really high potential to be played and be like a cornerstone card of a new archetype. Okay, I'm going to zag here, you know. Uh, I'm going to go in a different direction. I think the it's definitely true that this card is probably a wider range of power, right? Like the the potential is higher than a typical card. Um, that's it. I don't, I'm not sold on it just yet. Uh, I think that without the ability to kind of get the additional copy, um, I'm a bit hesitant that it's going to be that strong in general. And some of the cards that it pairs really well with, uh, like Yodela, um, haven't really proven themselves. That there's enough support around that kind of archetype just yet. So I'm definitely open to it, but right now I would... I'm a little lower without um without seeing a, a deck built around it just yet. I, I did eval evaluate Yodler, and you guys probably remember very recently that I talked about Yodler being bait in Unholy Death Knight, and Yodler builds being bad. The reason why Yodler builds are bad is because they only have two primary targets to actually Yodel, which are Nerubian Egg, and Foul Egg. However, if you add Kraken into the equation, a card that you can also use to pop eggs, 
then I think Yodler's consistently might increase. Also, this curves perfectly into Yodler. It has 5 health, so it's hard to pop on curve. So, I do think that this card could give Yodler enough consistency. And this is a someone who has said that Yodler is just not good right now. And, and I evaluated and I understood what its weaknesses are. And Kraken could help it become a more consistent card. Obviously, there's Death Growl as well. You can crack in Death Growl. I'm less convinced about that. But uh, as a way to just pop eggs, I think Kraken is good. I do wish there was another egg. If there was another egg, I would be super convinced. But the fact you only have Nerubian and Foul Egg as you know targets that you really want to Kraken in, in faster decks. So I'm not sure that's enough. But Kraken, I think, definitely replaces uh, Rowdy Fan in these kind of decks like the the three drop enabler i think kraken should be better than rowdy fan other other cards in a neutral set that that are really cool well mm, i think imposing an ubisoft is probably my favorite neutral um four mana seven seven taunt can't attack uh war warlock location gives me handlock vibes uh, you play uh, the Warlock Location. What, what's it called? The Warlock Location. Oh, uh, Forge of Wills. Forge of Wills. Yeah, so you play Forge of Wills on two. You play Anubisoth, um, imposing Anubisoth on four. You activate the location on it. You get a 477 Taunt that can attack and a 77 Rush. That seems powerful. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Anubisoft just being played in other decks just as a defensive block because it's massive. Um, it can't attack, but it's it's pretty good at protecting you. So I think this card is really cool. I do think there's um, probably a, a little too easy to kind of look away from the downside of can't attacking. Uh, even in slower decks, like being able to dictate trades, being able to counter pressure slower matchups um, can be very valuable. But in the absolute slowest decks, or in decks that are able to leverage the body with the location, for example, in Warlock, uh, I can see it being very useful uh, there. But something like, you know, control slow Warlocks, maybe, I don't know if like a Blood Death Knight or something along those lines. Yeah, some, some, some players think that you maybe you just play it in Priest or Blood Control just as a roadblock, and I'm not convinced about that. I think you need to be able to enable it because can't attack is a huge drawback. The card just sits there and does nothing. Uh, otherwise, like it just sits there and blocks the opponent. Uh, if you don't actually do anything, if you don't leverage this card, then I don't think it just. I don't think you just slap it. Uh, but since since Warlock has Forge of Wills, uh, is a perfect card for it. So I think you can leverage it and actually use use it in a offensive way as well. So I do like it. I think Serenite Tolvir is kind of funny. It's a four mana three five. It's basically Tazdingo. Um, taunt, whenever this is attacked, draw a card. I think this card is interesting. This could be quite a few cards. You can compare it to Treasure Guard a bit. Um, and then it doesn't look that impressive. And I don't think you just slap it into decks because the stats are bad. And if you are the one who are, is trying to pressure, this does kind of nothing. 
But, you know, obviously when you look at this card like that, you just imagine you playing this against like a board flooding deck and they're forced to attack into it and you draw like two, three cards. That's like the best case scenario. But it is a card that's curious, especially in decks that hand buff. Like if you hand buff this, then it gets pretty scary, right? For the opponent. You might mill yourself, actually. Yeah, the um, like a deck like hand buff Death Knight. I know that people mightn't remember that archetype. There's actually been quite a lot of hand buff Death Knight support. And one of the problems that I kind of looked at with that is that it doesn't have great card draw options. Like it just doesn't have a great way to reflood yeah. the board. And so this could be something that definitely fits into that type of archetype. Yeah, I I I played uh, uh, hand buff Death Knight a lot in the theorycrafting streams of Festival of Legends. And I had a lot of fun with it, but definitely what I noticed is that there was a lack of card draw and Tolvir can can definitely help with that. This is a card that you might throw into that kind of deck. So I do like it. I think um, Containment Unit, it's a 7-mana 6-6 six, six mech magnetic. The Death Rattle is summoned a random 8-cost minion. Oh, he's huge. This is this is like this is a massive card. This is a gigantic threat. I think it gives mech deck a much better late game. Like I think mech decks are generally going to top their their curve with this card. And if you land containment unit, you just win. Like it, it just it's so much stats for the cost, and it seems slow on paper, but I'm telling you, this is a win condition card. So I think people who, you know, look at it initially say, oh, this is a, a, a weird, expensive card, never sees play, right? No, this is the win condition of a mech deck that focus on, focuses on magnetic. Like, think about playing this containment unit, and then you play Lab Constructor <laughs> in Rogue and copying it. Like, the game is over. So I think that card is, is, is pretty interesting. Uh, and also, I do like uh, Son of Hodir. I think that card might see playing Druid. It's an 8-mana 8-8. Eight, eight. The battle cry is shuffle 4 8-8 eight, eight giants into your deck that are summoned when drawn. So, I think you can play Jailer into Son of Hodir. And that's kind of a big win condition. Right? Um, in a ramping deck, obviously, you ramp a lot, so expensive cards look a little bit better i am disappointed though by storm giant which is the eight mana eight a taunt that forges endlessly and every time you forge it costs two less i think that card could have been better generally if i look at all if i look at the whole set corb i would say that obviously it may not turn out that way but forge seems like an expensive uh, mechanic like, it, it seems like the fourth card strike me as a bit underpowered. I would agree. Um, when the mechanic was first announced, I was generally uh, excited. Like, we saw the three drop uh, the Cyclopean Crusher um, as the example. Uh, and I thought, you know what? Like, we've seen tradable, being able to buff up your stuff and not float mana and get a payoff. That's always nice, right? But I would agree that what we've seen so far has been a bit underwhelming. It feels like it's rarely you're rarely getting more than your two mana investment back um and so yeah i i i'm just not loving it from what i've seen so far 
lot less flexible than I would have hoped. Yeah, the problem with Forge is you... There are a lot of decks that can't afford to just pass turns, especially if you're playing an aggressive deck, I doubt you can actually forge comfortably. Like, forging on two, if you're playing an aggressive deck, just doesn't seem like a viable strat. And it just seems like, it feels to me, I'm not sure if it's right, that at some point in design, forge was one mana, like tradable, and then they nerfed it to two. Like, it just kind of feels like that after looking at the cards. Perhaps, um, yeah. Forge seems expensive. I will say Forge has a huge payoff, which is Ignis, the Eternal Flame, the 4-mana 2-4 that we're not going to specify. It just... You can discover weapons, and the weapons are nutty. Like, this card is going to be good. But the fact that you need to play Forge cards, probably at least three in your deck, so that you can consistently Forge before you you find Ignis, kind of... uh makes it more difficult to fit because I do think that Forge cards are just, they just don't, they, they all seem kind of meh, except for one. We have only seen the neutrals uh, for most classes so far. Um, so, you know, it's pretty typical that like, even if you're talking about something like tradable, um, there might be some stronger uh, Forge cards in the class sets because that's pretty normal. There's definitely, a, there's definitely a chance. Uh, I do think that there's one Forge card that I'm a big fan of. We'll get to that, but uh, eventually, I think in Druid, Druid uh, did not have a full class reveal, but I do think that Embrace of Nature, the one mana forge card, draw, choose one, uh, card, forge, it has both effects combined. This card is definitely going to be meta, it's definitely going to be strong, but the other forge cards I have not been impressed with this fa thus far. But we'll see. You said at the very top um, to highlight any neutral cards that you didn't, mention like i think we're on the same page like in terms of the highlights like containment unit uh even like saranite tolver i thought i was gonna have to bring up but no oh i ended up bringing up everything no I i'd say the one is starlight whelp because i feel like i've seen a lot of conversation about that card yeah this card is polarizing in opinions um it's a it's a three mana four three dragon the battle cry is get a random card from your starting hand this card is definitely interesting. I agree with you. I think if you play like Plague Death Knight or Relic Demon Hunter, you play decks that have, you know, a parasitic package where you want as much of those cards as possible, then you may consider this card. Uh, I, I generally agree with that. Uh, because you're like, if you're playing Relic Demon Hunter, you're hard mulliganing. Your hard mulligan is for relics and relicable. And if if Starlight Whelp is battle cry add a relic to your hand, then it's definitely good. Relic Demon Hunter plays School Teacher and Arobian Vizier, so it can discover more relics. So it makes sense that Whelp would go into that deck. Um also Plague Plague Death Knight it might play it. But it is a three mana four three. And if your starting hand is bad, it it kind of enhances your starting hand being like your hand being worse. So I'm not sure how that how that turns out, but but yeah, this is this is one of the more playable neutrals. Okay. Uh so is that all of them that you were looking to touch on before we get into the class cards? Yeah, yeah. All right, great. Yeah, so you've mentioned the plague cards. So I think that's a great place to start. So let's uh, go look at Death Knight, Zach. Uh the new plague mechanic. Uh yeah. I mean there's, uh, 
I think Plague Death Knight is definitely a deck that I generally don't like Death Knight. I'm not attracted to to the class and its archetype so far. But I think I might give Plague Death Knight a go. It sounds uh, quite cool. Um, it seems like their solution, Team Five solution to you know to people playing triple runes and that's it. You know they initially introduced uh, the Death Knight class. And they gave triple runes of blood and holy and frost. They gave them such powerful cards that there really is no reason to deviate. And now with this plague uh, archetype, they're kind of forcing you. If you want to play this whole package, you need to go two unholy and one frost. Now, I'm not sure I'm a huge fan of this approach, but it seems like they don't really have a choice if they want to diversify the rune selection. But it does give you a sense that rune selection is more of an illusion of choice rather than something that people are actually have the flexibility to go. Uh, if you want to play a certain archetype, you kind of your runes are kind of locked. They're kind of decided. You don't. You can't really tap into different runes. And that could definitely be true for now, right? Like the Death Knight class comes out. It's very um, separate into the three uh different runes then later in the mini set they offer a rainbow payoff players start experimenting with that uh but it doesn't really land too well uh and now they're kind of forcing you into a two unholy one frost so it's definitely possible that right now we're just going step by step three then they force us to diversify and then maybe in the future the rune selection can become a little bit more organic rather than packaging the cards in this way yeah, uh, definitely you can look to April when there's rotation and things like Vampiric Blood and Frostman's Fury are are going away. At that point, I think a lot will open up when it comes to, you know, rune selection, maybe that flexibility. It's fine for what it was now. I think it was a good idea when at launch you just release strong triple payoff and just introduce this is this is blood. This is what blood does. This is what Unholy does, and this is what Frost does. I think for what it was supposed to be, an introduction to the Death Knight class and a way to just understand and, and experience it, I think it was good. Like, I think it's fine to have strong triple rune payoffs, and I hope that they continue to have strong triple rune payoffs. But when it comes to offering other, you know, rune choices... It's something that they can definitely develop over time. For now, Plague, I think, has a good chance. Uh, looking at it, it has... For me, it's a bit strange that it's not a rainbow deck because the Plagues are Blood, Frost, and Unholy. But I think the reason why they went double, double Unholy, one Frost is they probably wanted to avoid this deck to have access to the survivability tools of Blood in the first, uh, the first run of Blood, at least. And uh, we, we should mention what the plague mechanic is, in case anyone isn't uh, completely aware. Uh, the, the plague mechanic is, think of it sort of like a bomb payoff uh, or similar to bombs where you shuffle things into your opponent's deck. There are three different types of cards that can get shuffled in. Blood uh, deals two damage to them, heals, uh, heals you for two. Um, the unholy plague, when they draw it, deals two damage, and then you get a 2-2. Two -two. Uh, and the Frost, which is deal two damage, and then the next card they have to play will cost one more 
up to 10 mana. So all the plagues, very thematic and on brand. Um, and the entire mechanic, you know, like I said, we're, we're playing bomb... Uh, bomb Death Knight in in some ways, <laughs> sort of a, a toned down version though, which uh, hopefully should make the games feel a little bit less polarizing as well. Um, they're also shuffling in more cards, so there's a little bit less variance than what we saw with something like Bomb Warrior. I do like that. So yeah, yeah it seems it seems like a really uh, clever reimagining and lessons learned from that previous archetype. Yeah, more shuffles, and the outcome is less severe than than bomb warrior uh another thing that to keep in mind is another reason why they may have gone to double unholy is that generally if you want to run the whole package if you want to run a defensive archetype around that package they put the key survivability tool the aoe tool the tomb trader four mana four three it has one frost or one unholy requirement the battle cry is destroy a plague in your opponent's deck to deal three damage to all enemy minions. So this is a, like a dust breaker, but it's better than a dust breaker because it has one extra attack and it only affects the opponent's side of the board, uh, which is very powerful when you have an AOE that's asymmetric. Um, so this card is only available to, to go in, into the frost rune. But you may even play this package in Unholy, Triple Unholy, and just run, you know, the weapon, Staff of the Primus, and the Kvaldir, and uh, uh, Hel- Helia, which is really, I think, the most important card for this archetype. Which is, it's a 4-mana 4-4 four four legendary. Battlecry shuffle all three plagues into your opponent's deck. Plagues they draw this game are unending. So how, what, is un- what does unending mean? It means that the plagues, after you draw them and the draw phase ends, they shuffle back into the deck. So if you have, let's say you have three plagues remaining and you've reached fatigue, then you draw the three plagues, you take six damage. At the end of the draw phase, they shuffle back into your deck. And the next turn, you're going to do it again. Do it again, yeah. So it gives you basically... Inevitability. This this card is what provides. I mean, you can potentially, without discoverers, you can shuffle 17 plagues into your opponent's deck, which is 34 damage. That's a lot. But Helia makes sure that even the most, you know, life-gaining archetypes, uh, like Blood Control Death Knight, like Control Priest, cannot outlast uh the inevitability that the Plague Death Knight can uh can dish out so this gives a lot of late game power to this deck and it's exciting because when you have inevitability you can build a deck that focuses on survivability um so i i think there's a chance that plague death Knight becomes pretty much a control deck that's not blood first death Knight control deck that's not blood and it wins through the inevitability of the plagues and it doesn't want to run Renathal. I like the sound of that. Um, yeah, no, very interested to see this. I, I, I have high hopes for the Plagues. I think that a lot of these cards are very, very standalone powerful. I like the synergy of the mechanic. Uh, we have some big payoffs with uh, the Chained Guardian, like a a, a big 11-8-5 Rush Reborn minion that costs one less for each Plague shuffled uh, this game. So 
I really like a lot of this, and uh, it it is going to be funny to me how this deck is going to be perceived or uh, what the you know general feeling is about it. Because is it really that diff that different than like a questline warlock Zach? You know, once you get to that late stage of inevitability, is that that much of a different vibe? I I wonder how people are going to feel about this. I think this reminds me more of Curse Warlock than Quest Warlock. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, Chain Guardian, I think, is a big payout. When you look at the... What I like about Chain Guardian is that you look at this deck, I think Double Unholy and One Frost has a lot of AoE potential. Like AoE you're going to have in spades, but single target removal, not so much. And Chain Guardian really helps with the single target removal. Because you basically, with Chain Guardian, you can kill two big threats with one card for pretty cheap. Because this card can get significantly discounted. You can shuffle without discover 17 plagues. So an 11 cost is going gonna, gonna to discount itself quite quickly. Like if you play it for 4 mana, this is quite strong. So it gives you single target removal for this archetype. And obviously there's the, the Primus, which you can play in any, any Death Knight deck. But I, I think it's a good fit for this archetype uh, specifically. When it comes to the rest of the Death Knight uh, cards that are not plague-oriented, there are three. I'm not too impressed with them. You basically have uh, Thrive in the Shadows with a little bit of an upside, Research Project with a little bit of an upside, and a pretty underwhelming Forge card, in my opinion. These cards, I'm not feeling them at all. Um, like Frozen Over, uh, the two mana spell, which is both players draw two cards, your opponent cannot play them next turn. You would think, oh, I will play that in Plague Death Knight in order to make my opponent draw the plagues. And there is a chance that you would do that, but the issue is if you play Frozen Over and your opponent draws a plague, obviously the plague uh, has a cast when drawn effect which means that it draws another card and that card is not gonna like your opponent can still play that card like if you play frozen over and you draw two plagues with it the two other cards that you draw you can play them your opponent can't play them so there's kind of anti-synergy here a bit yeah uh research project has seen play before but it's usually very yeah, very like niche. Uh, like you need a very specific type of deck. It's super comboy, and you need insane stalling. Like you need ice block level of stalling, solid alibi level of stalling. Because when you when you give your opponent two cards and you give them gas, and you're doing basically you're spending two mana doing nothing yourself in terms of impact on the board, then you need huge survivability. To be able to withstand all the resources that the opponent can 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 dish on you, can pressure you with. Um, yeah. And Frozen Over doesn't strike me like a research project kind of card. It doesn't strike me as something that's a good fit for a Death Knight. Maybe a Frost, like, but a triple Frost Death Knight really doesn't need this card. Because um, if you're playing an aggressive Frost Death Knight, you cannot spend mana not developing and not pressuring with your cards. So, and, and this card kind of does that. I definitely agree with you about the weak, how weak these uh, other three cards are. So not not too impressed uh, with these, but very excited about trying the plague stuff. I, I'm eager for this.
I think Plague of Death Knight is cool. I think it's a deck that there's a chance that I will play it. And I have like 75 wins with Death Knight. So that says uh, that says a lot. I'm actually, yeah, these, these cards are cool. Speaking of cool cards, Zach, let's do Hunter. Oh, yeah. Hunter, <laughs> honestly, after looking at these cards, I think there's a good chance that Hollowhound gets nerfed, which I will hate because I really like Hollowhound. But uh, for me... Uh, Always a bigger Jermungar, whatever that cult name is. <laughs> one mana, one mana spell. Give a minion plus two attack and excess damage dealt by attacks hits the enemy hero. This card is insane. Is an insane finishing card for Hound Hunter because there are two targets that are particularly scared with it. One is Hollow Hound. You play this on Hollow Hound. Think about this. Your opponent has like three minions in play. You play Hollowhound. You play ABJ. I'm going to call it ABJ. Hollowhound now has five attack. Cleaves. Heals you for 15. Right? It kills three. It, it hits three minions. All the excess damage that if you overkill some of the minions goes face, which deals more damage. Which means that Hollowhound heals for more than 15. It heals for 15 and it heals for whatever phase damage occurs. So basically Hollowhound is always a Reno. And it's a Reno that deals, I don't know, sometimes Pyroblast damage to the opponent. You think about Lorthamar Theron, which you can do. And basically it's it it feels like you're playing against a deck that has a sin, like a, a two-card combo that's both an Arcanist Unleashed Fell and a Sinful Brand at the same time. Like, you, how do you play minions into this? Like, you go into turn seven, you know they have Hound. They likely have ABJ as well because Hollow Hound they can find with Selective Breeder. ABJ they can find with Trinket Tracker, right? They, there's insane consistency in finding both pieces of these combos. Both. And it basically means that if you play minions past turn seven, then they can heal the full and kill you. The other card that's insane with ABJ is Mukla. You can Mr. Mukla on seven, put an ABJ on it, 12 attack, and like hit a 1 1, and you deal 11 damage to face. Like it, it turns Mukla into a charge minion. Right? It basically becomes a charge minion. Uh, I think Mukla, you start running it in every Hound Hunter with this card. So, when it comes to a standout card in the set for Hunter, immediately, always a bigger Jermanger uh, is insane. Like, this card just gives so much lethality to Hound Hunter. Yeah, people were already, uh, you know, Hound had a mixed response or has a mixed response right now. People are going to grow to hate this card quite a lot because ABJ, and I like that name, um, is incredible. Uh, specifically with Hollow, but just in general, like, I, I'm very excited about this card. Um, I think the design is sick. Uh, I, I love it when things go trade, but then also go face. Um, I love the Glaive weapon in Demon Hunter <laughs> uh, a ton. So I'm a big fan of these burn archetypes being able to, you know, control board, but also keep pushing burn damage. The issue for me, though, is that it punishes the opponent for playing minions, 
which is something that we know historically is not pleasant and it gives me sinful brand vibes yeah because like i can't play a big minion otherwise they use it to kill me with it and abj kind of gives you the same vibe you know we had trampling rhino and trampling rhino was kind of tolerable as an effect in hunter but hollow hound is like giga insane with this and it just yeah it's it's gonna be really really powerful i'm hoping again i'm hoping that this is balanced and we don't need to nerf it because i really don't want to nerf hollow hound i think oh one of my favorite designs on hunter ever like i love that card but it might become too good with it uh i'm gonna be honest uh yeah great point talking about how both pieces of that combo can also be tutored so you guys are probably going to be seeing a lot of this uh if hunter's going to be running around absolutely holo like hound hunter runs abj alongside with two bananas runs double trinket tracker insane consistency in establishing this combo basically uh on turn seven it should basically almost always have it so something to keep in mind it's it's going to highlight the importance of positioning guys it's going to be very important to positioning your minions correctly against holo Island, which is something uh that not a lot of players do and i think part of the reason why hound hunter uh drops a bit at top legend is because of uh the way that people play around hollow hound better uh other cards for like the hunter set is very strong for me uh and the other standout card is uh observer observer of myths which is a two mana one four that says after you summon a minion with more attack than this give all friendly minions plus one attack so how does this works how does this work it's a two mana one four you play a two attack minion you summon a two attack minion it gets buffed to two four right it buffs all minions by one attack if you want to keep activating observer the next minion needs to have three attack or above right and if you play like let's say three worms from awakening tremors which have four attack uh which is a one mana spell that uh adds you know three four one worms to your hand you can enable or observer in in a pretty insane way like on turn five this is a permanent bloodlust um to the board like you play observer you play three worms it's plus three attack to everything and you can kill opponents with it I think Observer has a good chance of enabling a token hunter deck. A deck that's similar to Unholy Death Knight, where you go low to the ground, you play a high minion density build, and you just, you know, go to town. You just spread wide, you play Observer, you play Worms, you kill your opponent with it uh, through, like, Bloodlust, Grave Strength kind of finisher. Yeah, uh, it reminds a little bit of like Calvaria in in Demon Hunter, but just a ton of lethality, just a, a huge pressuring unit that you feel like you have to immediately kill. But with the four health body as well, um, there can definitely be matchups where it can just come down on curve in the early game and start initially pressuring like a ton, uh, especially with that awakening uh, tremors and the four one worms that you get. Uh, that card is more impressive to me probably even than observer of myths the the schooling 2.0 the hunter version of schooling um that card looks amazing 
that card is also really annoying with monkeys. Like, imagine you're playing Barrel of Monkeys and you're hiding these four, one, four attack one drops with the, the 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 Silverback Patriarch that protects that worm. Gets really awkward unless you have over-the-top removal to deal with it. It's like it's a big threat. It's like four ones. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you can ping it, but... Like, imagine you play it into a rogue and they, he has to dagger <laughs> these worms <laughs> down. They're going to die. And again, if you hide it behind the barrel uh, of monkeys, then it can get really annoying. So I do agree that that card is low-key quite powerful, but it, it just enables Observer so well. Um, Observer is like... It's an archetype-defining... Uh, I think Hunter has a great chance of uh, formulating a new archetype that, you know, just floods the board and uses Observer as a bloodless grave strength effect. It's just really, really powerful. But pay attention to the fact that it, it, it affects all minions in play. And also, since it also gives itself attack, then you can't, you can't use three two-attack minions to buff it three times, right? Because it always needs one more, which is why the worms are perfect uh, enablers for it. So, uh, the other, I think, archetype that they're trying to support uh, in Hunter is a Secret Hunter. And the highlight of that is the Star Strong Bow, which is a 6-mana, six 6-2 six weapon that costs one less for each friendly secret that has triggered the scheme. And this card works extremely well with the Hunter Forge card, which is, I'm a fan of the Hunter Forge card. The Titan Forge Traps, which is a two-mana spell, discover and cast a secret. And if you forge, you can do it twice. So basically on turn four, you can spend four mana, two mana forging, then two mana casting this, developing two secrets. Obviously a great enabler for, um, for the bow. And this this bow is 12 damage. And that 12 damage comes down very fast because it's six attack on two charges. And you can very easily discount it to like two or three mana. I think that gives like a deck like Face Hunter a very good reason to play secrets. Uh this expansion festival legend, uh, we tried playing a build with uh, Jungle Jammer. It didn't work out too well. I think this weapon might be a better fit. You just run Custom Singer, which you want to run, because that card is insane for Secret Synergy. And you run uh, you run the Forge uh, spell, and very quickly, Bow gets discounted. So I think this has great potential. Yeah, the Bow is incredible. Um, often a little bit of a weakness of this type of archetype with Secrets um, is that because you package the deck with so many Secrets, you don't necessarily have a great ton of lethality of ways of closing out the games like you can be a pest but you got to be able to try and kill people and bow helps fix that weakness by a ton because 12 damage is 12 damage that's a lot of damage um and it comes down fast like it's important to note like a 6-2 weapon is better than a 4-3 weapon right because for a deck like that that wants to close out the game as quickly as possible it, Basically, this bow gives it a lot of burst. Like, there's two fireballs coming down to you over the next two turns. Uh, so, that's very powerful. Yeah, the Titanforge traps, um, I was initially a little 
a little lower on it than consensus uh just because uh you're not like if you play the forge version you're effectively spending four mana for just two secrets uh it's not really a huge upgrade but i think i initially was discounting that the card is actually very playable probably as a like without the forge uh spend two mana to get a get a discovered secret like that's going to be better than playing a normal secret um like the vast majority of the time so uh that's pretty strong so it's flexible both as a two drop or as a four drop if need be uh so it's a nice support piece for the bow um even if i am probably a little bit lower on it than what i'm looking at in general from the population i'm going to try and convince you why this card is really good um mm-hmm. you remember ringling rifle yes discovering and casting secrets is very powerful uh and i think that even though titan forge traps is not as good as ringling rifle because the ring was a four mana two two weapon that did this effect over two turns twice right but this card is cheaper than ringling rifle and you can cast two secrets at the same time uh so even though it's not as powerful i think it's flexible enough to to be very good and the fact that it discounts bow twice uh makes it a much better investment because because you're gonna get back that mana uh with the bow charges so i think it's it's quite powerful uh yeah uh, overall i think i think the hunter set uh looks really good there is the legendary hodir father of giants which is an 8 mana 8 8 battle cry set the stats of the next three minions you play to 8 8. You can technically play this in Hound Hunter. However, that's actually kind of awkward with Theron. But the thought of but but the thought of playing Hodir and then playing an 8 8 Hollow Hound and pl- putting an ABJ on it, it does it, it is tempting. It is tempting. I'm not gonna lie. That is tantalizing, but I think the Hunter set, it's strong. The Hunter set, it's also just very cool. Like, I'm quite happy with this set as a whole. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, usually, you know, in the, in the, in a few years of, you know, since Hearthstone's inception, which has been a decade, usually Hunter sets are not the most exciting thing for me. But I think this this set is very evocative. This deck, this set, like I'm thinking, there's there's like potentially two new archetypes. They made two cards, uh, Observer and 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 both that really makes you lean into new archetypes. And then they made ABJ, which is might be a mistake eventually, but <laughs> uh, it is very exciting for the existing existing archetype that Hunter has. So it feels like Hunter has a lot of options. Uh, it, it suddenly looks a very versatile, very interesting class. Like, just, just look at what happens when you give Hunter life gain. Again, I'm going to say this again. I think that when you give classes life gain and card draw that they normally don't have a lot of access uh, to, then it opens up so many new possibilities for the class. And it just becomes more interesting and versatile because Hunter used to be this class that play curve out with minions and go face and if you if that doesn't kill the opponent then you lose the game and that was kind of getting old so i'm really happy that they're willing to diversify uh, the directions that the class can can step into speaking of new possibilities zach 
Uh, let's go to Rogue. <laughs> Many new possibilities here. Uh, things that I haven't seen in, in this class before. Um, now, you've already given a lot of analysis in the reveal content uh, about Rogue, but uh, this is also a great chance to reiterate some thoughts or, or even put out some new, um, some new, perhaps harsher or I don't know, uh, thoughts into the Corb, world. You can, you can, you can say it. I, I didn't want to say it. When I write <laughs> the, the reveal article, obviously, you know, I'm going to be optimistic. I'm going to, uh, you know, initial impressions say what these cards can do. And then maybe in a podcast, I'm going to say, hmm, you know what? This could have been better. So I'm going to say it. I feel like my my uh, impression, okay? My impression is that over the last two weeks, <laughs> since the three mana, three, four magnetic mech that was revealed in Rogue, and the fact that Rogue got a prime that is a mech, the sense that Rogue set was going to be a mech-themed set gave a lot of people a sense of dread. Of like, oh no, Rogue is being trapped with a mech set. The class is done. It's over. It's Jover. And the reason is, there's a good reason for it. Mech decks are generally one-dimensional and they have a very short shelf life. What does that mean? is that usually you don't see players playing mech decks past the expansion where they were released. And even then, those decks are usually very limited at high levels of play, where more engaged players play, and usually they get a bit boring. Like tribal decks that have, you know, that you you introduce a full set, and, and Rogue has had it. It had it in Sunken City, where everything was pirates. It had it to a lesser extent. It wasn't exactly tribal, but it was like kind of kind of a package that you had to play together in Festival of Legend with the combo uh, set that pretty much nothing ended up materializing from that package. And now we get another Rogue set that is all in on mechs, something that Rogue really hasn't really hasn't played ever. Uh, and it doesn't feel very roguey, right? Mech decks and magnetizing doesn't strike you as the more rogue thing to do. The most rogue thing to do. I I will say, in terms of flavor, they did a good job of making mechs feel roguey. I do think that Mimiron the Mastermind is a really nice way for them to introduce a mech, but also a rogue card. Where you have, you, you generate the, the scraps, the, the spark bots, and you combo them. Multiple ones you played alongside Mimron, and you generate the the basically the enhanced uh, spare parts or gizmos or whatever you want to call them. I think that does feel roguey. That's cool, and the fact that the mech has the magnetic mech, the SP some numbers and letters uh, has stealth. I don't know why it's for one turn, but you know it, it's stealth, so that does feel a, a little bit like rogue. And the copper tail snoop gives you a coin when you attack. Gaining coins is something that Rogue does. I think they did a good job in terms of flavor of making Mech Rogue feels both Mech and Rogue. But the player base, there's a at least some of it. I think more highly engaged. The ones that reads data reports and goes to on, on our Discord is concerned that Rogue is kind of you know, kind of trying to survive off of 
basically a, a good Nath, uh, Nathria set. Uh, you've got the secret archetype. That's competitive. You got the miracle rogue archetype. That's fine. All of these things eventually rotate in April. And the first two sets of this year are combo that sees no play and now mechs. So you can understand the concern. Uh, okay, first of all, Zach, the three three four magnetic. It's a spider. That's it's spelt with leet speak. S P I D. So there you go. It's okay. It's spider, right? You're right. It is spider. Yes, but uh, I I agree. Um, I tried so hard to dance around it, man. Like I I didn't want to say it and just throw you under the bus and be like Zach, shit on the rogue set. Um, <laughs> but I think you've highlighted a lot of concerns that. Uh, I personally have, and I know a lot of other players have. Um, I, d- I definitely agree about the spare parts and gadgets being a great avenue to uh, to push this type of archetype. Like, the legendary, I find legitimately quite exciting. Um, the problem with it is you have to play mechs. You have to play a lot of mechs. Yeah, I don't want to play the deck that it's in. Yeah, you have to play a high density of mechs to make Mimiram good. You can theoretically... Just play, uh, you know, a few mix, a few mix, and play from the scrap heap, um, um, and and just you know tutor a memoron and go off with that. But that's a bit optimistic. Why would you do that when you can play like Miracle Road? The one thing I will say that I don't understand why from the scrap heap is two mana. I feel like that's too expensive. You compare it to schooling, you compare it to the hunter spell that we just looked at that generates the worms. Those are one mana. Uh, do the spark bots really justify an extra mana cost for this generation spell? I don't think so. I think this card could have been one mana and it wouldn't have been broken. And if scrap heap was one mana, I would be far more excited about this archetype in general because you would have a good card. And now instead I need a, like, I'm playing a mech deck. I don't want to run preparation. Am I really spending two mana in order to, you know, generate these spark bots and falling behind on board where i'm playing a mech deck which means i'm pretty i'm pretty initiative focused i need to be aggressive i can't afford to spend two mana to pass uh uh, you look at pit stop another slow card it's discover a mech from your deck give it plus two plus one which is pretty underwhelming stats yes it's discover but it's two mana are you playing that in a mech deck are you can you afford to to spend two mana in order to do that and you play this on turn two so you're not developing so you don't have things you're not playing things that you can then magnetize on turn three with copper Daryl snoop or spider i don't know how i didn't figure out that it's just spider but <laughs> thank you corp for, for bringing that out because i just saw numbers and i was like tuned out anyway uh yeah but the other thing that i'm worried about lab constructor i think has potential to be a pretty powerful card. I, I do think that, but again, you need to forge in order to make it good, right? Like the baseline card is unplayable. You never spend four mana in order to play two, three twos that maybe spawn further if your opponent disconnects from, from the client. Uh, like that's not going to happen. But can you afford to forge on turn two if you're playing mech rogue? Not really. So... You're basically delaying the forge for lab constructor, effectively, effectively making it a six mana play. Like on turn six, you forge and you play lab constructor and whatever you have on board, and maybe that's good. But 
that seems very slow. And I'm not confident that aggressive deck can actually forge. So I have a lot of question marks here. Yeah, uh, it's been a long time since I've thought about the words prep tax. Uh, there was like a number of years there where every time Rogue got kind of unplayable spells, it was just like, well, that's the tax that you got to play because you've got preparation in the class. Um, and that's got a little bit how it feels when I look at Scrap Heap and Pit Stop. If Pit Stop was... Obviously, if the cards were better, I would be more excited to play them. Like, duh, that's not a shocking statement. But if Pit Stop was one mana and gave a smaller attack bonus, or like a smaller stat bonus, um, that would be obviously a lot more tempting. If, if Scrap Heap was one mana, I'd be very, very excited about it. Uh, but it, it does seem like there's a whole lot of um, early game or, or cards in the early game that are low tempo or no tempo because it's like forging or getting stuff in your hand and then that doesn't synergize very well with needing things on board for the magnetic payoffs uh so i'm not really seeing why like it's difficult to find the significant payoffs for rogue and imagining how the deck is actually going to win games because everything feels slow expensive and it just seems like there's not enough there to make it worthwhile it feels like the warrior set of festival legends where you look at the rifts and said everything needs to be one less mana and i agree from the scrapper it needs to be one mana pit stop needs to be one mana plus one plus one attack uh it's just uh, one of the one of the magnetic like the spider can be a two mana two three with with magnetic uh like it, it just feels like everything is really slow for an archetype that supposedly needs you need to be fast. You need to get on board. You need to land magnetic buffs. So you need to you need to be very proactive. You can't play scrap imp and print stop on turn two with this deck. I I I really struggle with it. Uh I think this my personal prediction is this deck is gonna be a complete dud. And the other thing is at least on arrival, right? It's going to be dead on arrival in terms of competitiveness. Uh, but even if it's good, let's say it's good. This deck has seen no play past Diamond 4. Let's be let's be honest. Like This deck might see a little bit of play initially. And then even if it's good, people will might quickly get bored of it. That's my concern as well. Yeah, uh, I think that's very possible. Um you know, even something like Mecha Shark is so much more exciting, it feels like. Mech, Mech Mage, you know, had Mecha Shark and Seafloor Gateway, which are like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like, this is a mech deck, but I can also, like, do a combo turn, a big swing turn. Like, you had mana cheating. It's really we funny that you have a mech rogue and it doesn't have any mana cheating. <laughs> Great point. You put a mech archetype in rogue and it has a it has no way to discount its cards uh I, I, like there's so many ways to make this more exciting one do the buffs that i suggest pit stop scrappy we suggested buff to one mana i would do that i would also discount one of the magnetic mechs into two mana maybe the other thing you could have done put mech warper or galvanizer in core and things get a lot more interesting with this archetype just give it a way to discount mana make memron like you can play scrap imp into you scrap imp into galvanizer you discount all the spark bots to zero mana you start going off with memron suddenly that's an exciting you know 
power spike turn. Suddenly you think, oh, we can do something with this. It's mech, but it feels roguey. This doesn't feel roguey at all. Like, this feels like a bad mech paladin. My my one concern with mech warper and galvanizer, um, and, and for what it's worth, I will just add, I think that's in general like a really good idea, and they have talked about being open to changing core cards uh, as the year goes on. We'll see where they land. Um, but what I was saying, the, the issue I have with Galvanizer and Mechwarper, I imagine the Paladin and Mage would just still be a lot better. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I feel like with Radar Detector um, and the Mecha Shark stuff, if you are going to bring those cards back, I think that those other classes are already much stronger at abusing mana cheating mechs than anything that Rogue has right now. It's amazing how we're saying this. Paladin and Mage are much better at mana cheating and abusing cost discount than Rogue. What is going on here? Yeah, anyway, the Rogue set, I, I will say, I do think that Gear Shift is kind of a cool card. And Tarslik is also a cool card. Uh, these are not mech-related cards. Uh, and they might see some play, maybe. Uh, Gear Shift, especially if you're playing a very aggressive deck that, you know, is vomity. But again, the problem with aggressive decks that are vomity is, again, they're, they're a little bit one-dimensional. And I'm not sure they're particularly exciting to play or have a long shelf life. Uh, I don't really see in this set a... I don't really see a compelling set with a long shelf life. Add the fact that Voltron Prime is possibly the worst Titan. Uh, of them all. And the reason why it's the worst Titan is because it requires a minion in play to be remotely useful. And it's the most ignorable Titan. Like its abilities, if you let it go off with another ability, it's hardly game breaking. Like it's it's obviously you don't want it to stick for multiple turns. But the other Titans, if they stick for multiple turns, you say, oh, the game's over. With Voltron, if Voltron sticks a turn, I don't feel like the game is even over. Uh, so in that sense, it might be the worst Titan. Um, so yeah, this, this rogue set does not inspire much confidence. But again, there are... It's not a fundamental design issue. I don't think there's a fundamental issue with the set. I think the numbers are too big. I think we should make the numbers smaller. Like pit stop and scrapping to one mana... And we start talking. Yeah, uh, you you were saying like you know gear shift cool card and outlining that. Uh, I do think scrap heap is a cool card. It's just an expensive card. It's very cool. It's an it's a it's a great card. I think I love it. Like if it was if it was one mana, I would absolutely adore from the scrap heap. Uh, but it's just two. I don't understand why it's two. I think it's it's that prep tax, man. That prep tax. Yeah, but I I don't think that because of preparation. Like, I don't want to run preparation in my mech rogue. Like, I don't want to run preparation anyway. So, like, why are we printing bad spells or badly costed spells just because of preparation? I don't know if it's preparation or if just they're, they're just being cautious. I don't think you need to be cautious here. Just go ahead. Go nuts. Uh, I try not to let the wild talk uh, bleed into the podcast too much, but I will just add, Zach, gear shift with secret passage. Oh, I'm very excited about that. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. I understand why Gear Shift is nuts with Secret Passage, um, but it's not like it's a rogue deck. Even I guess Kingsbane runs Secret Passage right now. 
and and pirate pirate where it plays it pirate also runs oh i guess so right uh i guess but these these decks are not overly they're not too strong right now in wild so we had a wild report you know where these decks are located um yeah gear shift i think is a good card i i do think gear shift is good i think tar slick an explosive ship might be hilarious and maybe you run a control okay okay hear me out corb we're playing control rogue we're playing pit stop in order to uh, tutor explosive sheep, uh-huh. and we're gonna tar slick the explosive sheeps, and we have AOE and rogue. Uh, control AOE rogue and mech rogue. Oh, I'm so excited! <laughs> I would be super hyped for a control like a hard removal control rogue. I I would be I'd be concerned. It's like I think they might have changed the settings on the simulation if we got that in this universe. Might be, might be. But yeah, macro, like I'm open to it, but I, I think I think there's a numbers issue here. And uh, yeah, I would like the numbers to, to be lower. Um, So those are the three classes that we've gotten all the cards for. Uh, obviously in other classes, we've seen bits and pieces, but I think it's probably better off to hold off on all those until we see the full set. And we'll be able to talk about all of those classes next podcast. Yeah, next podcast, uh, we're planning on doing it on Monday, on uh, July 24th. That's when all the cards are going to be revealed. We're going to, in that podcast, we're not going to talk about the meta much. We're going to mostly talk about the rest of the class sets. We've got eight class sets uh, left, and we're going to do a a similar conversation we just had about these three classes uh, over the next eight classes. I'm really excited to see. Today is Priest Day. That should be good. and. Tomorrow, the next day is Druid Day. So there's a there's a full week ahead of, of class reveals. Day after day. Every day is interesting. Every day is going to bring excitement. I think reveal season uh, that's structured like this is perfect. Uh, and yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Um, and for a lot of these classes, we really have no idea just yet. Like Priest, we have nothing. So uh, even with that, it's even more exciting as well to see what we end up getting. Um, hopefully by the time this episode lands, that doesn't age horribly, what I just said. <laughs> um, but yes, we look forward to doing that next time on Monday. A reminder again that there will be a report on the 20th. And I may have never been more eager for a report to hear Zach write a love letter to Naga Mage. That's what I'm hoping to see on the 20th. Um, a reminder, guys, that you can always support Vicious Syndicate by signing up for VS Gold. You can also sign up with Patreon to get a whole bunch of sweet perks. Uh, a reminder as well that you can always follow Vicious Syndicate on Twitter at ViciousHS or come join the community and all the conversation in the Vicious Syndicate Discord. A huge thank you to Evil Dave for the podcast transcriptions and to Steven Sensei for the intro and outro. We'll see you next time, guys. Have a great one. The Data Reaper podcast is an official production of Vicious Syndicate. Don't forget to sign up and contribute your game data to improve the quality of the weekly Data Reaper report. Instructions are available on our website, along with lots of other weekly content at viciousyndicate.com. Thank you to all of our patrons and data contributors for proving their strength in numbers.